This morning's psalm begins with four words. Four simple words that express quite possibly the most universal and relatable sentiment in the entire book of Psalms. Save me, O God. Save me, O God. Have you ever uttered that prayer in your own life? Have you ever experienced a moment in life when the odds were so overwhelming that God was the only one that could be your hope? A time when your wisdom, your strength fell so far short that save me, O God, was all you could pray. I expect that for most of us, a time like this is easy to recall or possibly numerous times over the course of your lifetime. In many ways, pain and suffering is quintessential to what it means to be human in a fallen world. As a result, we don't have to work very hard to resonate with David's words here in Psalm 69 as he models how a believer should pray when their life is difficult and trying. Due to its length, I'm not going to read all the way through Psalm 69 here at the beginning of the message. Instead, we're going to walk through each of these sections verse by verse as we move through Psalm 69. But before we dive into the text, uh, let's take a moment to pray and ask the Lord's help in this endeavor. Father, even now, we wait on you. We recognize that as we come to your word, as we come to this psalm, we are incapable of understanding it correctly apart from your spirit. So we ask that as we read through it, as I teach through it, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of your word, that you would express that through me, that you would help me to have your words to teach to your people in this time this morning, that you would give us the ability to see and to recognize, and not only just to intellectually recognize what's being said, but to press those words deep into our hearts and our minds. Shape us and conform us to the image of your Son through our time in your word this morning. We pray this for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you are new to Faith Bible Church or you've missed the last couple of weeks here together, uh, you know that we've begun a new sermon series on the Messianic Psalms in the book of Psalms. We're focusing on worshiping Christ through examining those psalms as we anticipate his coming. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, which function much like an introduction to the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 details these two ways to live, this fork in the road, this opportunity to choose a path for the direction of our lives. And as the rest of the psalms follow, they encourage us time and time and time again to choose a path, to pick a way to live, either as the blessed man or as the wicked man in Psalm 1. Psalm 2, which Dave Drevo spoke on last week, introduces the Lord's anointed, this king who will reign, this king who all the nations of the world submit to and ultimately will have to respond for the way they respond to. And here in Psalm 69, we come to our first truly prophetic language that anticipates Christ. And David models for us four aspects of a believer's prayer for rescue. This idea of, save me, O God, how are the believers respond when life gets hard? First, David models an expression of 
real pain in verses 1 through 4. You'll notice the progression of this prayer as we walk through each of these sections. He starts with a frightening illustration. Look at verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. David uses a frightening illustration to introduce the pain he is experiencing. It is the imagery or the illustration of drowning. I don't know how many of you have ever been in a position where you thought you might be drowning or you thought someone close to you or someone around you was drowning. But if you have witnessed something like that, I can assure you that moment is well-defined by absolute terror. Absolute terror as the waters, as the psalmist says, sweep over them or over you. In short, David here is expressing that he is overwhelmed. He has no course of action. He has no way to respond. He is helpless and he believes he is hopeless. And drawing from that illustration, David speaks to the emotions he feels in the moment. Look at verse 3. He expresses a desperate emotion. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. David here feels mute and blind. He has grown so weary from crying out to God that his throat can hardly cry out anymore. He has grown so tired from expressing this sentiment to the Lord that his eyes are growing dim from exhaustion. The final phrase there is extremely poignant. Why is he so tired? Why does he feel so blind? Because he's been waiting, crying, and calling out to God for so long. With waiting for my God. David is desperate. Have you ever felt this sort of desperation? Looking at a situation or a circumstance in life that was so beyond you and was so frightening to you, that you grow exhausted from crying out and calling out to God. David moves from there to identify what specifically is going on in verse 4. We note his serious opposition, verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies, What I did not steal, must I now restore? David gets more specific, and he recognizes what the heart of the matter is. Up to this point, he's been speaking in metaphor and emotion. Here he says, what exactly is going on? He's being attacked by a number of opponents. His opponents are numerous, more number than the hairs of his head. They are mighty, and they are violent. They seek his demise. In short, victory is impossible in David's own strength. But even more than that, David's opponents are fundamentally wrong. Did you pick up on that language? There is no justification for their assault. Those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. 
And the final sentence there is probably better rendered as a statement than a question. The NASB has it as a statement. The ESV includes it as a question. Rather than, what I did not steal must I now restore. It's more indignation. What I didn't steal I am being told to restore. It's ridiculous. It's unjustified. David here says, I am innocent of what I am being charged with. Here David expresses the sort of real pain that we experience when we've been wrongfully accused. And he models what we are to do with that pain and anger. Have you ever been wrongly accused of something? Maybe something you didn't do that you were told you had done? Or possibly something that you did do that people misunderstood? You probably felt helpless and overwhelmed. As there was little you could do to rectify the situation and you just had to endure the pain and the blows. You probably felt desperate and exhausted as there are a few things that emotionally and mentally and physically exhaust us more than that sort of offense. You probably felt wronged and possibly angry at the injustice of it all and your inability to vindicate yourself to those that would attack you. Would it be shocking to learn that these are all normal human experiences and emotions in this life? And they are particularly typical for believers in this world, as strangers and aliens. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, if those are normal experiences for our life, what do we do with them? What do you do when you experience these sort of emotions that David is articulating in these verses? The question I believe that this section is asking us is, do you get angry or do you get on your knees? Do you lash out at others or do you express that emotion to the only one who truly understands it? David is entirely overwhelmed. He is helpless to do anything in this moment. And what does he do? He prays. Is our first instinct when we have been offended, when we have been hurt, when we have been mistreated to take it to the Lord in prayer. I believe David models the way we express real pain, real frustration, real anger to God when we've been wronged. He encourages us to do likewise, but he doesn't just leave it there. He digs deeper into this and models secondarily a reflection on human motives in verses 5 through 12. It's interesting to look at this section, and David begins by examining his own heart. Look at verse 5. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. He starts with a confession. He says, I'm enduring this assault, and God, you know my heart. Like no one else does. You know what I'm guilty of. You know my folly. You know my hidden faults. He expresses that orientation to God, and he says, Search me and know me, Lord. You know what's going on. And note that he confesses to being human. He confesses to being foolish here, but he does not confess to what he is currently being accused of. He said, I am true that I am folly. I am fo I'm wrong in many ways, but I haven't done what they've called or said that I've done. So he moves on from that, and he continues his reflection, and he states his concern. Look at verse 6. 
Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. He moves from his own confession, admitting that he's fallen and he's fallible, to saying, I'm concerned about your people, Lord. He's more concerned about the reputation of God's people than he is about his own reputation even. His concern is for others above himself. His concern is for the name of the Lord that's associated with the people of God being tarnished and dragged through the mud. So he moves from his concern, and then he comes to the heart of the matter, his cause in verses 7 through 12. Let me read this section. It says, For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit at the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. He confesses that he is fallible. He is concerned for the people of God, but most importantly, he realizes what the ultimate cause of the pain he's experiencing is. He indicates the core reason for his suffering. In this section, we see three reasons that he is suffering. First, seven and eight, he's suffering for his love for God. Did you see that in verse seven and eight? For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. He's saying, they're really after you, Lord. I'm collateral damage in all of this. He's being assaulted for his love for God. He's being assaulted for his love for worship. Look at verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The more devotion and love he has for the worship of God, the more these people hate him. And even his humility won't alleviate the problem. In verses 10 through 12, he's hated all the more for his fasting and for his mourning. He becomes a byword that is sung about by the drunkards of the town. It's worth noting in this section that David's zeal for God is the cause of his affliction. The ultimate reason he's enduring the pain he is is because he loves God, not because he doesn't. As one commentator put it, it is, despite its cost, a high compliment when we are drowning for the sake of Christ, his church, and all the institutions of the Christian faith. There's a recognition on David's part here that it is actually a high compliment to be being attacked and assaulted for the name of the Lord. So David here, having acknowledged his own shortcomings and affirmed his love for God's people, he ultimately concludes his accusers have an issue with God more than they have an issue with him. I've experienced this. Some of you know that my background is in construction management, and for a season, I was a job site superintendent. Well, one of the joys and sorrows of being a job site superintendent is you basically tell the subcontractors whatever the project manager tells you to tell them, which means you get to be the bearer of much unhappy news at times. 
Project manager says, we need to tell them this. And you'd be like, okay, I'm going to tell them that. So I became the messenger tasked with reporting negative things consistently to the subcontractors. And I became very well acquainted with the line, don't shoot the messenger. And while that was frustrating at times, it was also a great consolation. Because ultimately, delivering the message, I could say, hey, look, you had an issue, take it up with the project manager. You're angry at somebody, don't call me, call them. In some ways, that's what David is doing here. He's saying, ultimately, the anger and the frustration is toward God. I'm just collateral damage in all this. But he models well, I think, what we should do with the frustration and the anger that we feel, how we should examine our own hearts and examine what's really going on. First, he models how we examine and place our own heart before the Lord whenever we've been offended. It's so easy as a first action, as a first step when we get hurt or we get offended to lash out at somebody else, to justify ourselves and say, I was absolutely right in this. Instead, what David does is he says, Lord, you know my folly. You know what I'm guilty of. Am I guilty of what I'm being accused of or not? Having received a negative answer, he then ensures that his chief concern is for God's reputation and the people of God, not his own. Because the other tendency of our hearts when we're hurt is to be so concerned about ourselves that we lose sight of everyone else in our world. We lose sight of God's glory. We lose sight of other people. And it becomes primarily about our pain and what we're experiencing. And David says, my primary concern here is for the reputation of the people of God, not my own. And then lastly, I think there are times when we need to recognize when people are simply angry at God and are taking it out on us. As believers in this world, we are going to experience this more and more and more all the time. We're going to have to get adept at learning to say, these people hate God. They may be kicking us, they may be yelling at us, but they hate God. And we have to recognize and walk through the motions of saying, it is against you, God, that they're really angry. And God can handle it. Particularly as we endeavor to share Christ in our evangelism, and we get kickback from people. Are we shocked when they respond toward us with anger? Well, they can't kick God. We have to learn to recognize when people are simply angry with God and not us. So David models how we examine our motives first, but then how we recognize that the heart of the matter is people's anger toward God. Because only then can we move on to his next section, an appeal for divine aid in verses 13 through 28. This comes to the heart of the psalm, his cry for help from the Lord. He begins by once again affirming his need for God. Look at verse 13. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. He reminds himself and he reminds us that rescue will come only by God's power, in God's timing, and according to God's character. 
It isn't something we achieve in our own strength. It isn't something we work for in our own power. Rescue is by God's power, in God's timing, and according to God's character. And from there, he offers up this prayer of help. He pleads out for God to help him, and he says three specific requests. See if you can pick them up. Let me read verses 14 through 21, this whole section. See if you can't see the three things David is asking for here. He says, deliver me from, the sinking in the mire, or from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep shallow or swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Did you see the three specific requests that David makes here in this psalm? First, he pleads for deliverance. He says, God, deliver me. Verse 14, deliver me from the sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. He ushers up this familiar imagery from the beginning of Psalm 69, and he asks for deliverance from the pain, deliverance from death, and deliverance from his enemies. He says, Lord, you're the only one that can deliver me. Would you do it? But as he continues to prayer or pray, we see a shift a bit in his thinking from his situation to something a little different. And he asks God to answer him in verses 16 and 17. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. David grounds his requests, his plea to be answered in two aspects of God's character. First, in God's steadfast love and second, in his abundant mercy. He says, God, because I know who you are, would you answer me? Would you respond to me out of your love and mercy? And then he really gets to the heart of the matter. From deliver me to answer me, and he finishes with, know me, Lord. Verses 18 through 21. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. His deepest desire in this moment of pain is that God would be near to him, that he would draw near to David, that he would redeem him like Boaz did with Ruth in the Old Testament, that he would ransom and purchase him out of the pain he's experiencing. He's asking that God would know him and know the pain that he's experiencing. His plea is to be liberated and known by God. See, there are times in life where the only safe place seems to be in the arms of God. When the rest of the world seems to be against us and everyone seems to be opposed to us and the only safe place is with God. He says, know me, answer me, deliver me. And from there, David shifts from asking for help, to praying for judgment. And we enter a section known as an imprecatory section. Troy mentioned it at the beginning of the message. These are hard sections throughout the book of Psalms. An imprecatory psalm or section 
is a section that prays for judgment and punishment on evil. And it gets a little bit awkward for us, so let me just note a few things as we read through this section. The first thing is, the psalmists continue to use extensive imagery and hyperbole. They use exaggerated language to communicate the emotion of the situation. Second, in these sections calling for judgment, there is a clear offense against God, against his people, or against one of his anointed officers. So there's a very direct line from what has been done to the judgment of God. Thirdly, the motivation, as we mentioned earlier, is God's glory, not personal offense. These imprecatory psalms, this language isn't meant for that person I don't like, I'm going to call down God's judgment on them. Not what they're to be used for. And fourthly, they're all divinely inspired, and we need to recognize that as we walk through them. So I encourage caution as we pray through and proceed through this section. Let's look at David's prayer for judgment in verses 23 through 28. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents for they persecuted him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Did that make anybody else feel a little bit squeamish? That's extremely strong language. David essentially asks for two things of the Lord. He asks for futility for his enemies in verses 22 and 23. Basically wants their endeavors to be flipped. The offenses that they're bringing on him, he wants them to experience. But then, even harsher, he asks for judgment on his enemies in verses 24 through 28. Did you pick up the language? May their camp be made desolate. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So I would note verse 26 is a key to understanding this correctly. The reason for the judgment is for they persecuted him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those whom you have wounded. Their offense is against one of the Lord's anointed. Their offense is against the king. And David begs the Lord for justice. He begs for vindication and judgment on the wicked. In this section, David essentially asks God, to act in accordance with Psalm 1. To do what Psalm 1 said would happen. That the Lord sees the righteous, but he destroys the way of the wicked. And so we must be cautious as we move into application with this section. Some of us are probably asking the question, how do I reconcile this sort of teaching in Psalms with Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 or the text that we find in Romans 12 to love our enemies? Let me just give us a few principles to interpret here that we need to keep in mind. The first, it is appropriate to ask for God's deliverance. It is appropriate to ask for God's deliverance when we are experiencing pain and trials, but we must submit to His timing. More often than not, when we read through texts like this, we want immediate deliverance from our pain. God, just get me out of this. Just 
get me out of this situation. And it's okay to long for deliverance, but God has only promised that to do in His timing. God has promised that one day there will be no more pain, but He hasn't promised that day is tomorrow. He hasn't promised that it will be in our timing. It is appropriate to ask for God's deliverance, but we must submit to His timing. Second, it is appropriate to hate sin and evil. It is appropriate to despise rebellion against God. But that must always include our own as much as other people's. The natural tendency of the human heart is to minimize our own sin and maximize everyone else's. When people ask for God to be just, they want God to call down wrath and fire on someone else, but not on them. We all long for justice, and we should have justice in the world in order for it to be rightly ordered. But that begins with our own hearts. That begins with a recognition of the sin in our hearts. It is appropriate to hate sin and evil, but that must always include our own as well. Lastly, it is appropriate to desire God's justice, but not without the cross. The cross satisfied the just wrath of God. The cross was the place where God's wrath, the psalmist explains here, the punishment upon punishment was poured out for our sin upon Jesus Christ. As we cry out for justice, we must recognize that the justice for our own sin fell upon Jesus Christ on that day. You cannot interpret the justice of God without the cross of Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that here in just a moment. Because in this section, I think David models the believers longing for help and longing for justice from God. He prays to God for help and for justice. And then in verse 29, we see a really interesting turn. A moment when the tone of the whole psalm shifts. Look at verse 29. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. The psalmist shifts from lament, expression of pain, to praise. And David finally ends this psalm in what feels like a strange way to us with a profession of joyful praise in verses 29 through 36. He begins with individual praise. Look at verse 30 and 31. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. He expresses how true heartfelt worship is greater to God than even sacrifice. We find that theme throughout the Old Testament and other places in the psalm or what we talked about last summer in the book of Malachi, how true heartfelt worship trumps religious ritual every time. He says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. But his worship can't just be personal. Quickly, it becomes contagious. Look at verse 32 and 33. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Says the praise, the worship moves from him as an individual to the congregation of the people. The humble become glad. 
Those who seek God become revived. Those who are needy are heard by God as they express their praise to God. And finally, the psalmist extends that praise to all of creation in universal praise in verses 34 through 36. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Here in the end of this psalm, we see all of creation praising God. We see how God saves his people. God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and it ushers us forward to Revelation 20, 21 and 22, this reminder of God's ultimate victory and his rescue of his people, his putting them in a safe place to live and be with him. This sort of universal praise. And though this seems strange to us, the point the end of this psalm makes is that the ultimate purpose for any pain in our lives is God's glory and our good. We tend to view pain as something to be endured, something to be gotten rid of, and the fact of the matter is there is a purpose in the pain we experience in this life. As James 1 puts it, the testing of our faith is to produce or the testing of our faith is to produce patience and endurance and long-suffering. There is a purpose in our pain. It is God's glory and our good. As Job said, though he slay me, yet I will Praise him. There's at least two connections between pain and worship that I think we need to note here, that we need to remember even as we go through hard times. The first is that worship reminds us of the purpose of pain. Turning to God in worship reminds us that God is doing something in our lives through the pain and the trials that we experience. And it doesn't make it any less painful, but it does give us a reason for why we're going through it. It helps us to endure. It helps us to work through it. It helps us to worship in it. Secondly, worship reminds us of the end of pain. It reminds us of the day when God will truly rescue his people and will truly, excuse me, truly put an end to pain in this life. And so we worship God to remind ourselves that God is doing something in the pain. And we worship God to remind ourselves that there will ultimately be an end to the pain that we experience in this life. And David models that so well in this psalm. A psalm filled with heartache and pain, with frustration and anger and any number of emotions that we experience in this life. But he ends by modeling how even pain should direct us in worship to God. This is what Psalm 69 is all about. It models for us how believers express our pain to God. How we reflect on our human motivation and others' motivation. How we appeal to God for divine aid and how we ultimately profess worship of God. But Psalm 69 does even more than that. Did you pick up on the messianic language in Psalm 69? Did you pick up on any familiar phrases as we walked through the text? There are at least three direct references to Jesus in Psalm 69. In verse 9, we see this. 
for zeal for your house has consumed me. John, in the second chapter of his gospel, verse 17, quotes this and says, the disciples remembered this verse when they saw Jesus clear out the temple of the money changers and lenders. Christ's enthusiasm for God's glory was greater than anyone who had ever lived, and he quotes this verse. Verse 4 is quoted in John 15, verse 25, of Christ being hated. Are those more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause? Christ was hated more than any one of us has ever been hated or experienced in this life. And Psalm 69 says, there is one coming who will experience this more than even David and we do. And then in verse 21, this familiar phrase, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. This phrase is quoted in all four gospels of Jesus on the cross as they offered up sour wine to him in the crucifixion and he rejected it. Christ experienced more pain, more hate, and more vilification than any of us ever will. Put it this way. The greatest injustice in the history of the world was done to the most innocent man who ever lived for the salvation of the ones perpetrating that act to satisfy the justice called for in Psalm 69. As we resonate with the pain and the struggle here, we have to recognize that this is even more true of Christ than it is for any of us. Let me say that again. The greatest injustice in the history of the world was done to the most innocent man who ever lived for the salvation of those perpetrating the act on him to satisfy the justice called for in Psalm 69. Let that reality sink and settle on your heart as you resonate with the pain in this psalm. Because as a result of that, Psalm 69 becomes not merely a model of how to express our pain to that Savior, though that is true. Even more than that, it becomes a motivation for enduring suffering the way our Savior did. This was more true of Christ than it will ever be for any one of us, and yet he willingly went to the cross, absorbed that pain, took the wrath of God and the punishment that we deserved. This psalm is about Christ, and it serves as a motivation and a model for us to endure suffering as well. Let's pray. Father, the psalms are full of emotionally laden language. In many ways, they are some of the hardest texts in the Bible to read because we feel them and we experience them. We recognize that this reality of enduring suffering and being wrongfully accused is typical for this life in a fallen world. But Father, we can't claim, like Christ, to be innocent. We can't claim that every accusation hurled against us is wrong. But it was against Him. So Father, we look to Him as the founder and perfecter of our faith. We ask that you would help us to endure pain and endure suffering like Christ did. He is our model. He is our example. He is the one that gives us the strength to be able to walk through hard times with grace.
We pray these things in his name. Amen.